Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And the first thing that we want to say is we hope you're safe. Yeah. So many people have suffered so significantly during this recent hard freeze that we had. We know people who are still without water because of burst pipes in their homes, getting plumbing repair done. Gosh, that's going to take some time. So uh, if you need help, please go to the St. Paul's website. And there you will find a place where you can request assistance. If you are in a position to offer help in the form of physical labor, time, hospitality, money, food, uh, water, whatever. St. Paul's offering holy plumbing? I don't think so. Okay. Although there was somebody on the staff who did say that they, and I sent that link to you. Mm-hmm about some special plumbing part? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the it's like gold right now, these little half inch or three quarter inch uh, pipe caps where you can cap your pipe at the place of the, of the burst. I got the last one at the hardware store by my house and it had just been returned. Wow. Serendipitous. I didn't have a burst pipe, but uh, ironically a shower head broke during the time of turning water off and on again. Both of my adult children live in Houston, and they both had burst pipes. Yeah. Fortunately, we did not, but boy, it got cold. It got cold, and you had no power for a bit. Over two days. We had no water, but we had power. So, um, do you want to... Yeah. So, you know, in lieu of these moments of um, what 2020 seemed to have given us, and, oh, well, we, we were going to talk about this first. Well, I just, yeah, I, I, I do want to put in a, another plug for the webinar that will be done uh, on March the 9th at 7 o'clock with uh, John Tucker. Um, I am almost through with my second read of this book. And I tell you right up front, it's not an easy read. It's going to stretch your mind. However... It is, to me, a representation of the theological thinking of the future uh, because um, John is not doing this work in light of like the stuff that Holly is expert in and Ilya Delio and people like that that you've been familiar with. He's a trained philosopher and he's doing it from that point of view. Mm -hmm. But I think it's brilliant stuff. So we're going to have a webinar coming event on... Um, March tonight at 7 o'clock. You can go to the Ordinary Life website and on the landing page, on the right-hand side of the page, there's a link where you can click and register for the webinar. Of course, it's free, but it does help us to know um, kind of how to get our ducks in a row for that evening. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, it'll, it should be exciting. I'll, I'll look forward to just being in, hearing the conversation and I what comes up. It. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this too. Um, you can give donations through Ordinary Life. If you click on our website, there are donate buttons, which takes you to a form to St. Paul's website. And in the memo, just write Ordinary Life. And all of that goes towards great opportunities that are helping to serve the poor and underserved communities in Houston. 
And right now we're, we're giving out money a little bit more periodically during the year because of COVID, now because of what's going on in Houston that has proven to us that we are very much fair weather people and fair weather state. <laughs> um, and we look like a third world country. I mean, it's nuts. It exposes the infrastructure to a huge degree and the political moves that were made to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. It's just nuts. So, yeah. But this is, I thought this was an appropriate <laughs> cartoon for this time. Mom, what is normal? Oh, it's just a setting on the dryer, honey, which is about how things feel <laughs> these days. Um, we keep saying we want to get back to normal and that it may well just be a setting on the dryer. And I'm going to guess that a lot of us are not alone in having to reconfigure how things work in our house or number 600 on a plumbing list waiting for the plumber to come. Um, I, had, I have a, a dad who is smart enough to be dangerous <laughs> and impatient enough to not want to be number 600 on the list. So he jerry-rigged a shower <laughs> with about 10 of those 10 different couplings and um, until it could all fit and put the lever on his shower head. Is this in his house? This is in his house, in his bathroom, because one of the pipes burst and the, uh, the cartridge broke. I mean, it just kind of one thing after another. And it was, um, this is how he fixed it. So I'm thinking we're going to come up with a new sort of fashion in plumbing of just whatever the hell you can find and put it together to make it work. <laughs> So, um, so I really hope that's comedic, but what some of us have had to go through this past week is not comedic at all. And just want to hope that you all are safe and well enough to be both warm and tend to the things that need to be tended to. You know, I, I, I think uh, because of the work that I do mm -hmm. and you've put up with me long enough now to know I like yeah, to- Yeah, that's put up with you. I like to look far down the road yeah, it's good for me, actually. And and so I think weeks ahead of time about what we're going to do in here. And I think also the way that I schedule. I think anybody who's in any kind of self-employed private practice has a scheduling that moves them out into the future. Sure. And I was thinking, uh, you know, it will soon be a solid year that we have done this. Yeah, we, we did not anticipate that at all in March. Six weeks, maybe, and then it was six months, and then six months, it was like, we're going to give up Forever? trying to yeah. It looks like it. <laughs> so I'm glad that we've been able and, to do and, it. And, 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 th and thank goodness for um, Tim Leatherwood and, and for William Budge and Olivia Watson and John Watson, who have been here every Sunday yeah. to make sure that this all gets put together and goes out. Well, really, that, they make sure we stay on track. <laughs> you believe that? I mean, John gives us the. He tells us when to four, shut up, and we. And, we, we yeah. I noticed lately. He gets we, up when it's time for us to we've stop. Been ignoring, we've been ignoring up. that. Yeah, we have kind of. Anyway, um, <laughs> we notice occasionally when we look at the analytics of who's watching that people are watching from all over the country, and um, I know that we have pe people who are watching in uh, Europe. And in England and Scotland, and so welcome to everyone. Whether you're uh, whether it's the evening over there for you, and you're a wine and cheese person, or whether you're having 
pancakes and mimosas or whatever. Uh, thank you. Thank you for hanging in there with us over this long period of time, and we will persevere. And at some point, we will regather. Yeah, we are going to stop guessing as to when that might be, though, because we really just don't know. Both Sherry and I have had both of our vaccine shots, and I was thinking that after that, that you know, people who've had those shots can start to reconvene, but the CDC says not. Well, but so. then it creates also a division of like, if you've had your shot, come. If you haven't, I mean, that's tough. Okay. <laughs> At any rate, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Some of you may be old enough to remember in the 60s that there was a book that was published by a guy named Dr. David Rubin called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. Woody Allen made a movie, the same title, which we tried to watch the other night. I didn't think it was that funny. Oh, but, really? Mm. I haven't ever watched it. It was vignettes. Um, I don't know how closely they were based on that book or not, but well, this class today isn't about sex. <laughs> it's about Sorry something much more up. powerful and much more mysterious and um, life-changing. Um, so we just stolen the title from the book. Everything you always wanted to know about God, but were afraid to ask. And I have to say, Bill is the titler in this duo. He, he has titles probably for the next six weeks, but just gives them to me one week at a time so I don't get overwhelmed. <laughs> next week, we're going to talk about um, walking the path between being infantilized and being trivialized. Yes. The, the, yeah. I like that. I like that, too, I'll, I even though that. I misread it. So I, I want to begin this uh, class today with a modern parable. Early in the last century... In the days when the great whaling ships went out from New Bedford, Massachusetts to scour the ocean for whale oil, the most famous skipper of them all was a man named um, Eleazar Hall. Captain Hall took his vessel into more remote seas. He brought home greater quantities of oil. He lost fewer crewmen in the process than any other master of his time. And all of this was quite remarkable because Eleazar had no formal training in navigation of any kind. And when he was asked how he guided his ship infallibly over the desert of waters, he said, well, I go up on the deck, I listen to the wind and the rigging, get a drift of the sea, take a long look at the stars, and then I chart my course. One day, however, the march of time caught up with this ancient mariner. The insurance company whose agents covered the vessels of Captain Hull's employers declared that it would no longer write a policy for any ship whose master did not meet certain formal education in the science of navigation. Now, Captain Hull's superiors could understand this, but they were at a loss as to how to approach this proud old man who had served his entire career on the bridge and tell him that he either had to go back to school or retire. 
So after some consultation, they decided to meet the problem head on. Three of the company's executives waited for Captain Hall to come into port and they put their dilemma to him as tactfully as possible. And to their amazement, the old fellow responded enthusiastically. It appeared that he had always wanted to learn something about science <laughs> and he was entirely <laughs> willing to spend several months studying it. So the arrangements were made and Eliezer Hall went to school. He studied hard. He graduated near the top of his class and then he returned to his ship. He set out to sea and he was gone for two years. Hmm. When the skipper's friends heard that he was putting into port again, they met him in an informal delegation at the docks and they inquired eagerly how it felt to navigate by the book after so many years of doing it the other way. And Captain Hull said, it was wonderful. When I wanted to know my position, I'd go down to my cabin, get out all the charts and the compass and the triangle, work through all the proper equations, and set a course with mathematical precision. Mm. <clears throat> and then... I would go up on the deck, get a drift of the sea, listen to the wind and the rigging, take a long look at the stars, and, set, and correct my errors. To me, this is a parable about how to do theology in, mm. the, in, the, in the future, that we have to rely on the best of scientific data, and also we have to rely on the unknown, on intuition, on mysticism. You know, there are two pieces that are used in the liturgy of most liturgical churches today. Two standard pieces that are used every Sunday. You all know them. They are the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, both of these contain a beginning, I believe, or our Father in the case of the Lord's Prayer. And they both end in a doxology, Amen, or some statement of praise. And between those two bookends are what we call the content of our faith. The first word of the Lord's Prayer, our, and the last word, amen, form a frame, as it were, for which people of faith to put what they believe as they seek to follow Jesus. That is to say, both of these liturgical pieces have to be understood not as scientific facts, but as statements of faith. I personally wish we did not use the Apostles' Creed. That's another class for another <laughs> time. We're going to take that up today. But what Holly and I are attempting to do is to go through the Lord's Prayer, seeking both to express and find meaning that might guide, give us guidance for the living of these days of division, disillusionment, distortion of truth, various kinds of injustice, particularly racial injustice yeah. and economic injustice. Yeah. I love that you used a parable about seafaring, about sailing. I'm, I'm not a sailor, but I, I was raised by one and have been taught some rudimentary skills about sailing. I've also been taught how to swear like a sailor. <laughs> I told you a story yesterday. My dad was fixing something. Sorry, Dad. And he's just going off on something. And Evan looked at me and said, now I know where you get it from. <laughs> so anyways, your story reminded me of the ancient Polynesian wayfinders who sailed with neither sextant 
nor chart. Instead, they suctioned their ear to the bottom of the boat. They listened to the sounds of the water. They listened to how the water changed as they approached land. What is that on the right? I'm about to tell you. Okay. It's a, it's a rudimentary map or chart, I should say. I cannot believe I just said map. Sorry, Phil. Um, <laughs> anyhow, they could listen to how the, the, wa the sounds of the water changed based on the depth. They laid with their bodies flat upon the, the, the base of the boat, the floor of the boat, and they felt the swells beneath the vessel. So they could tell sometimes when weather was coming, what animals were beneath them. They held their hands like so to just to read the position of the stars. Like Monk. Just like Monk. I don't know that about Monk, but okay. <laughs> so they could find their position on the ocean. They navigated by celestial objects, by what animals that were around, birds, sea animals. And they taught their children to make these rudimentary compasses, as you see, from, and, and then charts that, that the shells mark what islands they encountered on their journeys. And the, the sticks and the reeds map, chart what kind of um, elevations and swells there are at particular places. So as they cross, that's where the, the water becomes more shallow. It's, it's just fascinating to me that with their bodies and their <coughs> minds, they made these, these charts that became informative for later usages of sextants, compasses, celestial maps, and ocean charts. They were in conversation with the natural world they were informed by the land and the sea and the sky. You have to wonder then what we have lost by turning increasingly toward intelligent technology to find our way instead of on our intuition, our own knowledge, our inner guide, if you will. Last week we talked about an idea of an impassive universe versus a responsive universe. This way of navigating that the Polynesian seafarers passed down from master to apprentice is very much about becoming unlost and responding to the universe, if you will. Their methods laid the groundwork for future expeditions, for discovery of other lands, the eventual acceptance of a round earth, and a heliocentric universe because they noticed how the stars changed as the seasons changed. Necessity for survival gave way to invention, which gave way to knowledge, and wonder gives way to scientific discovery and theory. But if we approach science with wonder, it, and it, we remain sort of reverent of that original field of wonder, then we can also embrace the evolving universe. We can embrace mystery. Science does not erase mystery. It just seeks to incorporate it in a different way. Carl Sagan wrote a book in 2006 called The Varieties of Scientific Experience. It's an excellent book, and he wrote it sort of in response as well as homage to an early 19th century book by the philosopher um, and psychologist William James. He wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. This book, William James's is more is considered research on the ways in which mostly male, mostly white, mostly Euro, um, and all Christian people experience religious ecstasy or mystical encounters. He wrote the book through his worldview, just as Carl Sagan wrote the book through his worldview. He's essentially trying to find proof for God's existence, and he concludes that the religious experience is the proof of God's existence. 
James wrote, it does not follow because our ancestors made so many errors of fact and mixed them with their religion that we should therefore leave off being religious at all. By being religious, we establish ourselves in possession of ultimate reality at the only points at which reality is given us to guard. Our responsible concern is with our private destiny after all. He's right that we should not leave off being religious, but we must further his thinking in two fundamental ways. Number one, the authentic religious life does not have anything to do with belief or not belief. And number two, our concern should, in fact, not be with just our private destiny. That line is confusing because of the use of our and private in the same sentence. So it's kind of like, well, which one is it? Is it all of us? Is it just me? And our concern really should be with that first word of the Lord's Prayer, which we talked about last week, our, the whole, how to move forward in reverence of and service to the interconnected whole. Carl Sagan counters William James in saying that maybe God is not necessary to experience awe. He was not an atheist, though many, many people pigeonholed him as an atheist. He more or less called himself an agnostic because he never claimed to be able to disprove the existence of God. He also never claimed to be able to prove it. But he wasn't exactly a believer in the way that we think of the word. He was, however, a wonderer. He roundly critiqued the God of the gaps, which um, if you are reading Tucker's book or you've ever read Carl Sagan, the God of the gaps is that as we, we, we place God in whatever we cannot explain. At one time, we couldn't explain why the sun rose for half the day and didn't for the other half of the day, so we called the sun a God. At one time, we couldn't explain why volcanoes did what they did, so in order to appease them, some people threw virgins in them or animals or sacrifices. So we used God to explain what we couldn't understand. That's what the God of the gaps is. The major gap we filled with God has to do with the origin of life, especially human life. We have such a difficult time imagining that we are evolved of the earth rather than placed upon it by some mysterious celestial being. We also have a really hard time with the acceptance of death. And this is John Tucker's whole premise of his book that he refers to as absolute grief. So we filled that gap with the hope of an afterlife that's everlasting and mistakenly created entire theologies that we took a scientific fact around that mythology. This is the belief that we need to let go of. He quotes, Carl Sagan quotes a poem that a woman named Lily Emery wrote to him. She's from rural Arkansas. And she sent him kind of an inquiry, a poetic inquiry. She wrote, my kind didn't really slither out of a tidal pool, did we? God, I need to believe you created me. We are so small down here. And what Carl Sagan writes is that there, there is this very general truth and a very real anxiety that Lily expresses in her poem. Who are we and how do we belong? We're so small in this vast universe. And yet, Carl Sagan responds, if we are merely matter intricately assembled, is this demeaning? If there's nothing in here but atoms assembled to make a brain and a heart and an imagination, does that make us less or does that make matter so much more? That we are matter with hearts and minds and intellects and the ability to wonder, to me, is a rather astounding fact. So um, our 
was assigned, required to read William James mm -hmm. in um, undergraduate as well as graduate school. And it never occurred to me until you and I worked on this this week that that book was researched based on white European male Christian religious experience and then extended as if it were true for everybody. Right. That's my critique of it. I think he has one example of a Hindu um, mystic in there, but that's it. I could be wrong, but it's mostly centered around that sort of white Euro male experience. Another book that I was required to read in um, graduate school was a book by a man named Rudolf Otto. Rudolf Otto was a German Lutheran theologian, and he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, an inquiry into the non-rational factor in the idea of the divine and its relation to the rational. Mm. So remember, this is kind of where we started with Eliezer Hall using the charts and also his intuition. And uh, Polynesian wayfarers using their bodies and their intuition to figure out a, a, a way to go. Um, in this book, <clears throat> Rudolf Otto says, among other things, that when someone has an experience of the holy, they find themselves caught up in two opposite things at the same time. One he called the mysterium tremendum, and the other he called the mysterium fascinosum. Now, um, what those terms mean are, one, the scary mystery and the alluring mystery. We're both drawn forward and we both draw back in awe. You have that experience a lot in both Hebrew and Christian scripture. And we are pulled forward at the same time. Now, forgive this earthy kind of analogy, but if you have difficulty understanding this, just think about your own initial encounter with your own human sexuality that it was, on the one hand, both alluring and, on the other hand, really terrifying. So in the Mysterium Tremendum, God is ultimately far, ultimately beyond. Too much, too much. And as I said, you find a lot of this understanding of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly in Isaiah, the notion inspired fear and awe and, and um, this drawing back. Um, many people never get beyond this understanding of God. And if this is where one ends up with this understanding only of the holy, then what comes into play is the thing like fear, guilt, sin. Sin management becomes very, very uh, important in this way of understanding God and religion. And of course, the clergy move in to take care of that. We're sin managers. You do this, and you get off the hook. You believe this, you get off the hook. You belong here, and you're safe. But Otto says that in addition to this experience, there's also one of fascination. There's one of allurement. There's one of seduction, of being pulled into something that is good and inviting and wonderful. It's a paradox. 
both these things at the same time. It's a non-dual experience. And Otto says that if you don't have both, you don't have a really full experience of the holy. Now, we do not live in the same world or have the same worldview as those first followers of Jesus. Further, God has turned out to be, um, if God is understood as a being, as a being who's out there somewhere, uh, human creation. <clears throat> Humans be, human beings tried to fit God into our words that met our own needs. We were seeking to describe our experience of the holy, uh, to use Otto's phrase, but we had only human words, only human concepts with which to do this. Now, we're living in a world where for many people, these definitions have run their course. These definitions are disintegrating. They're falling apart. Now, of course, fundamental religions in, in all religions, um, in, in all the monotheistic religions, I should say, are trying to do a rear guard action and, and fix it where God is real. God intervened in history, spoke to us, divinely inspired scriptures that we can take as the truth and the guide for ourselves. There is that going on, but that canopy, to use Peter Berger's phrase, that sacred canopy is eroding over time and fewer and fewer people are finding um, any kind of comfort living under that canopy. All human definitions turn out to be time bound and time warped. So how do we talk about God? How do we talk about the holy? How do we talk about this sacred mystery? It is not easy. When I entered graduate school, there was a book by J.B. Phillips, and some of you are old enough to remember, called Your God is Too Small. And that was a very popular book because it struck a chord with a lot of people. We did not know then what we now know about the cosmos. So when I first encountered Ilya Delio, it, she was saying the same thing, but she was basing it on a much broader understanding of the cosmos. Same thing is true of Michael Morewood, Brian Swim, Holly Hudley, <laughs> <laughs> all these other people who know so much more about the cosmos than we did in the 50s. The meaning of God cannot be limited by the scope of our minds, and this is a very hard reality for a lot of people to admit. There's something comforting um, and maddening about having a God who's out there somewhere. For one thing, it creates the illusion that we are in control. So if we're going to talk about what and who God is, we have to talk about what and who God is not. And mm. I want to say God is not a being. God does not exist like a tree exists or a rock exists. And we've got to take steps to move beyond the notion that God is a being and try to step into what it might mean for us in our own religious life to say that God is being itself. We're beings. We are beings. We exist in space and time, but what is being itself? Mm. And that's both something that the cosmologist and the philosophers are helping us to understand. I believe that we are able to experience that which words cannot describe and that 
and here's a warning, if we do not do this, we lose the life that comes from an awareness that we live and move and have our being inside this being itself. <laughs> those, those words you'll also find in Paul's writings. God is not a being and God is not out there. And um, I think I won't repeat this because Holly has done this um, last Sunday and before, but this is why the Jews didn't pronounce the word God. Mm -hmm. They had this sacred set of symbols. I like how you just said, I think I won't repeat it. <laughs> and then I'm going to repeat it. <laughs> I'm not going to do all that I had here. Okay. I love the word, the, the non-word Yahweh. There's the, the idea that it's a tetragrammon too, that, 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 uh -huh. if, that it's upside down and, you know, that anyhow, that it, the way that it was written was kind of, it could be reversed, it was upside down, that it, it made the sounds like male and female, made the sounds like breath, anyhow. So, um, I, 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 we can't say the word. We can't get our, our minds around it. And, and what I said uh, at the end of that piece was that the divine can only be seen in and through the human. Mm. One must look inward and not outward to experience the meaning of God. And my co-teacher took issue with this. <laughs> well, I just want to tease it out a little bit. Do it. Um, I, and the, we, the way we wrote this week, which was useful because both of us were kind of like, In the ah, cold. it's Thursday, <laughs> um, is that Bill started, I responded. Bill wrote more. I responded. It was kind of a fun writing dialogue to have. Um, and my exact words that I wrote back to him were, hmm, I want to know more about what you mean by we must look inward and not outward to experience the meaning of God. Because the paradox is that it's both, right? Well, to use your illustration, what I mean by that is lying on the bottom of the boat. Yeah. Using our intuition. Relying and on, yet we're in response to we this are other. In, we are in response. This other thing, right. and so the the cautionary tale is to go so far inward is to be in our ego. To go so far outward is to lose any lose any sense of personal meaning. Mm -hmm. So we've got to find that really mm -hmm. sensitive edge of inward and outward. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? I do. Okay. And I, listening to you talk, who I thought about was Sarah Grant. Ah, I love, yeah, that little PDF that you sent. Yeah. 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 And she's the one who said, um, it wasn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because, because it, it was, was the, the way. way. Yeah, I love and that Such line. a beautiful idea. And this is what we are trying. And we, as human beings, like Carl Sagan said, we are wanderers. We are meaning makers. We want to know that though we are so small, that our lives have meaning. I think I heard Matt Russell talk about, you know, the ocean is so large and my boat is so small. It feels that way so often. And we want to know that we have purpose and meaning in our lives. Um, I think I, I spent a lot of time yesterday with Phil, my dad, because we were fixing things. And he said something about, you know, the dog doesn't know that the dog is going to die. It doesn't have anxiety around this. But we have built up this anxiety around 
what happens in our life and what happens at the end of life. And so we want God of the gaps to fill in the meaning. For so that. It, it, I, I thought of something then too, is that, you know, we are ch children of the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. I mean, the Enlightenment has brought us many, 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 many right. good things. But it has also seduced us into thinking that we can put all of this into our concepts. Right. And so I don't know where I got this line. Maybe from Jim Finley, maybe mm. from Thomas Merton, I don't know. But the, if we are people of the Enlightenment, we get to thinking that we can put the ocean in a thimble. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, but you can put the thimble in an ocean. And it works both ways. Works the both universe ways. is in a mustard seed. And there's no way the universe is in a mustard seed. Right. Right? So that it's just this mind-bending need to sit with paradox at every turn. And here we are, trying to bend your minds a little. <laughs> Anyhow, so much of contemporary theology that is also informed by science shows us this human need for what William James called the something more. So both Sagan and James in their different traditions are grasping for that, that something more that points us like a rudimentary compass of the Polynesians toward home. We are, in a sense, all wayfinders. So if we can think of home as symbolic here, as belonging, where home is a, a, a desire for belonging, ultimately James concludes that God is not known, he is not understood, he is used. Note the male pronoun James wrote when James wrote in the early 1900s. But it is not God at the end of the day, but life, more life, a larger, richer, more satisfying life is in the last analysis, the end of religion. John Tucker is really expanding that notion of to live an enlarged and liberated religious life, we must let go of belief. We must let go of the God of the gaps. So how, without being stuck inside of traditional belief paradigms, do we live in this larger, richer, ultimately more satisfying life? If we only rely on theology or mythology for conceptions of mystery, we lose hold of what is true. If we only rely upon science for what is true, we lose hold of mystery. I believe this is where poetry comes in. And as you know by now, I love poetry and I use it daily as a spiritual practice. Diane Ackerman is a poet who got hold of Carl Sagan's imagination. And he became, he actually contacted her and said, I want to be your advisor for your dissertation. Because she was writing about the cosmos in her poetry. And he said, she is a writer and a poet who got it right and upheld the mystery. Yeah, so he was her, one of her advisors for her dissertation. She writes about this intersection of science and human nature of our longing for cosmic companionship, which, we may, which may be exactly why we conceived of something like God. We wanted cosmic companionship. The universe is so big and we are so small. So of course we wanted something to keep us company. In her poem, We Are Listening, she refers to the whole extraordinary mystery trip of being alive at our propensity for wonder, the seductive and startling way that science reveals truths here is the poem. One, as our metal eyes wake to absolute night, where whispers fly from the beginning of time, 
We cup our ears to the heavens. We are listening. On the volcanic lips of Flagstaff and in the fields beyond Boston, in a great array that blooms like coral from the desert floor, on high wire webs patrolled by computer spiders in Puerto Rico, we are listening for a sound beyond us, beyond sound, searching for a lighthouse in the breakwaters of our uncertainty, an electronic murmur, a bright, fragile I am. Small as tree frogs, staking out one end of an endless swamp, we are listening. Through the longest night, we imagine which dawns between the life and time of stars. Two, our voice trembles with its own electric. We who mood like iguanas, we who breathe sleep for a third of our lives, we who heat food to the steaminess of fresh prey, then feast with such baroque good manners it grows cold. In mind gardens and on real verandas, we are listening, wrapped among the Persian lilacs and the crickets, while radio telescopes roll their heads as if in anguish. I love that image. With our scurrying minds and our idolless will and our lank floppy bodies and our galloping yins and our deep cosmic loneliness and our starboard hearts, where love careens, we are listening, the small bipeds with the giant dreams. That's beautiful. It's, I'll include the full text in the, in, the, in the summary, but it is such a beautiful poem. Again, that's We Are Listening by Diane Ackerman. I, I didn't notice until I read it out loud, actually, all the little nods to seafaring. Mm -hmm. the, our starboard hearts, you know, just really lovely sense of bringing intuition and, and, and knowledge together. So she expresses here wonder not just at the universe, but at the very marrow of what it means to be human, which is to listen and to wonder. Our cosmic loneliness propels us to listen and know also, but to create. So we want to create what we see. This is why we write poetry, why we create art, why we try to put words to something so ineffable as God. We're searchers and we're wayfinders trying to find a way home. The very nature of being human is just that, I think, to learn how to be, as you said, amidst cosmic immensities. We know what it is to be in exile, to question our purpose and contribution to society. David White, who's another poet I really like, he was originally trained as a biologist. I find this so interesting. These folks who are trained in the sciences who through science have come to some sense of wonder at the universe and become something like a poet. Richard Blanco was an engineer and then became poet laureate of the United States. You know, so it's, it's really interesting that the dialogue of poetry which can find space between the logical world and the sort of more heartfelt or romantic world. Anyway, he wrote <clears throat> that as a human being, all you have to do is to enumerate exactly the way you don't feel at home in the world. And the moment you've uttered the exact dimensional of, it, of your exile, you're already taking the path back to the way, back to the place you should be. You're already on your way home. I don't think this coming home is solitary work done just for our own individual sense of coming home, as William James said. I think it's collective. I think it's communal. And it should be liberative. 
Are we listening, as Diane Ackerman wrote? Are we listening to one another's sounds and rhythms to how being makes itself uniquely known in the world? Are we considering definitions of home and belonging for not just our personal life, but for the lives of all humans and creatures? That takes me back to Robin Wall Kimmerer's definition of indigenous, which is to care about the healing of all beings. Mm -hmm. That is what it means to be an indigenous person. This is essential to justice work, the concept of coming home, of caring about the healing of all beings, which I liken to that concept of indigeneity. I don't mean to imply here that there is some big kumbaya palace out there where we're all going to come skipping and singing U-N-I-T-Y. I think we have to let go of these naive notions of global unity. I just don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. We're too pluralistic. We're trying to figure out our own identities. But there are two things to consider here. First, religious narrative and ritual is about living as if there is a God whose last word is love, who is about wholeness. We'll never actually see the actual face of God unless we are content to see the face of God here. Right. Which brings me to the second thing. Why can't we live as if unity among diversity is also possible? Interconnectedness, that each thing affects every other thing, is the most basic truth of the universe. So... Um one of the things that I like about John Tucker's book is that he's trying to lead people in through a door to religious life without theological language. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, there is a, a line that he uses over and over in the book called theological explanation is theology at its worst. Mm -hmm. And, I th you know, what, what he means there, I think, is exactly what you just illustrated by reading that poem. We're going to find in the realm, we're going to find that for which we seek in the realm of the poetic and the mysterious and living as if. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe we call it as if theology. As if theology. Live, live as if. Well, but, that, but this is also true. Pascal's wager was, we should live as if there's a God so that we don't go to hell. That was based mm -hmm. on a three-tiered universe, mm -hmm. right? And I think Tucker nuances that a little bit. We should live as if God is about being compassionate. We should live as if God is about being right here right. and about this interconnectedness. And it's, right? it's, it's something that really calls on us to step out of this dualistic um, Age of Enlightenment thinking into what it means to have faith. Mm -hmm. It means to have faith, mm -hmm. and we do this in in our living all the time. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> okay, now we're anyway. off. Keep going. So <laughs> uh, I want to. I want to. Uh, we're going to amplify on these lines next week. This is from Neil Douglas Scott's rendition of the Lord's Prayer. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibrations, soften the ground of my being. All right. Carve out a space within me where your presence can abide. Now that has a little bit of dualistic thinking in it. Oh, but that's, I just had a moment where I had, saw two things at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> now I, I want to introduce here um, into this 
kind of highfalutin philosophical thinking that we're doing today, <laughs> something that's really quite down to earth, I hope. All these people who are saints and mystics, all these people who end up in these poetic non-dual places, there is not a single <laughs> instance in the Bible where any person who had this kind of God reality dawn on them, uh, it did not dawn on them in some mystical aloofness. They were all found by God or God found them and found God, however you want to say it, in the social needs and the movements of their time. That's one of the reasons I think this is such an exciting time for us to be alive. Um, we're presented right now, if we don't lose it, if we can hang on to it, with an awareness of social needs and injustices that need to be addressed to us in really, really profound ways. I mean, addressed by us in profound ways. The book of Isaiah has this wonderful description of Isaiah having this great holy moment in which I saw the Lord high and lifted up. But that's not where it started for Isaiah. If you go back and read that, the passage opens with a very political statement. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw... But it's a political context for that. Moses did not start his journey at the burning bush where he heard Moses take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And it was out of that experience that this unpronounceable word for God came out of that. Who am I going to say sent me on this mission of journey? Mercy. And God just says, tell him I am sent you. Yeah. What does that mean? And then we struggle with that to this very that's moment. That's right. Um, that's where Moses' journey ended. It started with him being aware of the oppression of his Hebrew brothers and sisters who were breaking their backs under Egyptian uh, enslavement uh, until he could tolerate the wrongness of it no longer. One day his scorching indignation broke loose uh, a clod of an Egyptian, I realize after I wrote that how judgmental it is, was beating the daylights out of a Hebrew and furiously Moses went after him. Just one thing mattered at that time and that was Israel must be free. And there is where the road began that put him on his awareness to God. Uh, I think that's going to be true for us too. We have to get in the mire and the muck of helping our brothers and sisters who need help and uplifting because everybody does better when everybody does better. That story in the Bible is, is probably, if not the, one of the fundamental basis of liberation theology. That, that from exodus to liberation. Yes. Right. You know, I've hung out with some pretty sophisticated, very knowledgeable people in this God business. Um, <laughs> When I went to Harvard, my theology professor was Gordon Kaufman, who it turns out that people who attend Ordinary Life personally know. Oh, wow. He was a Mennonite, Kaufman was. And uh, he was incredibly brilliant. And he wrote a book called God, colon, The Problem. <laughs> 
And uh, one of the things that I really, really respected about my time there, I don't know, I know you also went there and got your psychology graduate degree. Well, education, but, but in psychology, yeah. Uh, I, 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 what I really appreciated was the precision of language mm -hmm. that those people used about what they were trying to communicate. There's no scholarly place that I've ever been to like Harvard. I mean, it is a very heady experience, for sure. My point is that no matter how scholarly and erudite we are, mm -hmm. no matter uh, how intellectually respectable we want to be, um, evolutionary cosmology informs us that God can neither be held in our hands like an object to examine or pointed to for someone to see. Now, one reason for this is that reason is not coextensive with reality. <laughs> that's hard, that's a hard sentence that. to, to <laughs> illustrate. But I thought of an illustration. Uh, they don't make boxes of Morton salt like they used to. But when I, and I tried to find this on the internet and I could not find it. So I don't, th but I don't think I'm making this up. Martin Salt, <clears throat> their logo has a picture of a girl walking in the rain holding an umbrella with a box of Martin Salt under her arm with the salt coming out. And the motto is when it rains, it pours, meaning that Martin Salt is the kind of salt that moisture will not ruin, which is not entirely true, but it's a good <laughs> ad. And, <laughs> and on the box of Martin Salt, there was a picture of a girl holding a box of Martin Salt. And on that box that she was holding, there was a picture of a girl <laughs> holding a box. I later learned out that, um, found out that this is called infinite regression. Yes. And I was a much better theologian when I was eight years old than I am now, oh. believe it or not. I always wondered if, the, if this were not uh, limited by the confines of printer's ink and type, could it just go on forever? Could there be a forever regression of these little girls holding boxes of Morton salt with the little girls on them holding boxes of Morton salt? Um, in, in the fast, past few years, um, hmm. I've learned a lot more about the cosmos, thanks to Holly and Brian Swim and Ilya Delio and a bunch of other people. Uh, and I've learned that it's the same thing as a box of Martin salt. It's not learnable because you're looking into infinity. Um, it's like getting a map out. I don't, we don't do this anymore when we travel in cars because we have GPSs that tell us when to redirect our path. But if you Wouldn't get it be incredible if we laid on the floor of our car? It would be insane. We lost. <laughs> <laughs> I used to lay in the place behind the back yes, seat. Me the, too, before we had to wear seatbelts. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> if you get a map out and you see all the roads on the map leading to something just off the edge of the map, the implication is, the evidence seems to be that there's a city off the edge of the map, but you can't see it. Hmm because it's not on that particular map. And we don't have a map that will tell us about where the sacred is. Yeah. What you believe about that city being off the map, being there is gonna certainly influence how you travel. Um, that's your life. 
but you can never see the city. I think that's a very poor analogy of how it is with God. You can never get behind what the word God points to and make objective, rational judgments about God's existence. And one of the most important things I've learned, I think, over the past few years of teaching this class is that a mystery is not something that is not no a, a mystery is not something that is unknowable a mystery is something that is endlessly knowable so in this sense god is not there go back and read some of the most important teachings and parables of jesus jesus talked about a god who is absent parable after parable um, jesus pleads for us to come to terms with the wise and good purposes of an absentee God. We're introduced to an absentee king, an absentee landlord, an absentee householder, an absentee bridegroom, a treasure that is hidden, a pearl that is hard to find, a seed that grows secretly. And in that agonizing cry of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Faith holds it that even the absence of God is part of God's doing. Mm. I'm, I'm like thrilled to death with some of your illustrations. I love the Morton Salt. I love God as infinite regression and as being off the map. Yeah. It's off the map. So we're like way off the map here, just trying to explore this infinite. You know, we have our spacesuits on. But if God is wholeness, if we're saying that or, or, or postulating that that might be what God is and we are the image of God, why is it that our societies and our relationships feel so fragmented, so broken and unwhole? Why do we remain in exile to say that, why have you forsaken me? I, I want to try to help us to make sense of John Tucker's idea of exile. And I may be doing it wrong, but biblically exile relates to the whole notion of original sin. We're in exile from the garden. We're in exile from God. And original sin is the notion that we are damaged. Thus need the grace of God and a salvific Jesus to find our way back home. Tucker, however, challenges us to see that we cannot be something we don't know. We can't be sinful if we have no preconception of sin. So Adam and Eve could not be sinful if they had no preconception of what that meant. It's a brilliant chapter in the book. Yeah, it is, and it's a tough one, and it, but it, it, I think I'm boiling it down to the essential ingredients. Just like we can't know kindness without also knowing unkindness. We can't know a thing without experience what the thing is not. That's the cataphatic, apophatic, right? Mm -hmm. This, I, I love those two words. So Tucker's right in line with the things that Bill and I are trying to deconstruct here. Substitutionary theology is bogus. Yeah. <laughs> Original sin is damaging. It creates shame, and it's also quite sexist. Predestination is a farce. Humans are not inherently bad. We are, however, incomplete and unfinished, just like the rest of reality. We cannot separate ourselves from this reality, and that's what I think it means to be whole. I think home is in that space in between, and wholeness is the acceptance that all the incomplete parts make a painstakingly beautiful picture that is one whole. I want to share with you, you said you were a better theologian when you were eight. I love this, what, what this little five-year-old Haley, who lives with us, what she drew is this picture. And what you're going to hear 
is her explanation of her picture. Mute my mic. So, so the little circle is like, is, is God. Okay. And what is, is God? Is God connected to everything else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that? Okay. So tell me about how the circle of God is connected to things. It's, it's connected to, um, a banana, um, a house smell, a river, and tears. Tears. I love that God is connected to our tears. What does that mean to you? That's connected to humans. God is connected to humans. Do you think, when you think of God, do you think of kindness? Or, or do you think of, um, what do you think of when you think of God? Kindness. Yeah, anything else? No. No. Just a heart. Just a heart? Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much for sharing your drawing, Haley. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else you want to say? Yeah. What? Bye. Bye. (laughs) So she's a pretty good theologian, I think. It's so meta what she says. The bananas actually can't exist without the rivers, the water. The homes can't exist without the people who construct them. And the people can't exist without the bananas, which feed them. So she drew this whole interconnected circle at the level of a five-year-old, and she really gets it. There's nothing at all wrong with imagining connectivity as the greatest thing. To take this very seriously is to be in right religion, and it deserves our pursuit, our scholarship, our attention, and our creativity. No belief is required of us here, only being. Martin Luther King lived and died and went to jail for his commitment to interdependence. In a real sense, he says, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. So um, one of the things that we have said today is that there are understandings of God that need to die. They need to go away. And when you get the summary of this in the email on Tuesday, you will see the list that I would have read if we had not run out of time. What we're saying in this class today is that we're encouraging us to embrace the loving parent notion of God that Jesus offers us in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, our, our loving parent, without thinking that we got it, but with believing that we can trust it. The sacred unknowable mystery with whom we can have an intimate relationship penetrates 
not only all of creation, but is all of creation. God is every aspect of creation. There's no place available from which we can examine God with our objective eye. That's a futile attempt. So to get in touch with this ground of being who gives meaning, after we've worked it all out with our charts and our books and our rational formulae, we have to go up on deck get a drift of the sea, listen to the wind and the rigging, take a long look at the stars, and plot our course. Hmm. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>